listener production. Hi everyone, welcome back to Just The Gist. I hope you've had a fab week wherever you are, whatever you've been up to. Rosie's been crocheting her little fingers to the bone in the spa and I'm up in the Whitsundays in a very cute little beach town called Bowen whose claim to fame is not only that it's the home of the big mango but also that it's the spot where Baz Luhrmann filmed the movie Australia with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman a decade or so ago. And we're going to do something a little bit different this week because a lot of you have been writing in with requests for stories that you want me to revisit and sharing info and updates on some of our favorite characters from previous episodes. So this week I'm going to do a few sort of quick fire updates on stories that you've been asking about. I'll power through new pieces of information about five or six or so of our older episodes to bring everyone right up to speed with some of our favorite tales. And then we'll replay one of our all-time favorite episodes, which is of historical importance for a couple of reasons this week. We're taking you back to the Great Emu War of 1932, and I'll explain why in a little bit. And then once we've had a re-jisson to the Great Emu War episode, I'll walk you through the Great Emu Escape of 2021, which happened in the last couple of weeks. So let's jump right in with the updates because there's quite a bit to cover. We'll start off with Miss Agafia Lykov. So a handful of you have been asking for updates on Agafia for a while. Not a lot's been going on. If you've listened to our episode, you know she's the old woman who's lived her entire 77-year-long life deep in the Siberian wilderness. We covered her in episode 71 back in February of this year. Hopefully, you've enjoyed that already. Her parents were part of a sect of Russian Orthodox Christians called Old Believers, and they were scared that the Soviets were going to kill them. So they went and hid in the forest in the 1930s. They weren't discovered until the 1970s when some geologists stumbled across them and told them they didn't need to stay hiding in their little hut anymore. They could come and rejoin society. And they said, nah, thanks. We're good here and stayed put. But then all of them died except Agafia, who still chose to keep dwelling in the little shack her father built out of logs and mud and twigs all alone in the forest. It's one of our favorite stories for sure, because honestly, she was born and raised in a really shit situation. She was raised in a cult. She was brainwashed, indoctrinated. She'd only ever met her immediate family until she was in her forties. And then she went on to find a way to make the world work for her by just being a total menace. She recognized pretty early on that she was classified as a precious, special individual whom the Russians would protect at all costs because of everything that she's been through. And she has milked it by making sure she's always been catered to, even though she lives in the most remote place you could possibly imagine. Every year, she has volunteers come to her in the summer to chop her firewood for her, to make hay for her goats, to harvest her crops. And in our episode, we left knowing the story of the Russian billionaire who was paying to have a luxurious new house built for her, helicoptered in piece by piece and assembled right next door to the house that she'd lived in her whole life. Again, in one of the most remote places on earth. And then in March, we shared an update at one of our live shows that she had just moved into the comfortable new home, which had central heating and heated floors and toilet seats, all sorts of luxuries. Well, she then had her group of volunteers on site this year, as she had for the last few decades. She bossed them around for a few months, told them what they were doing wrong every day while she was reclining in her new McMansion. And then last month when the winter started to creep in and all of the volunteers work was done, it was time for them to go. And just as they were heading off in their boat, they noticed smoke spiraling up into the sky coming from the area where Agafia's house is. So They turned around, legged it back up to the house to find that the old house, the original house that Agafia's father built, was on fire. 
and they were obviously anxious that the fire could spread to the fancy new palace. And they were also worried because the original house is like a historic landmark of national importance. So they put the fire out as quickly as they could, but by that point, the entire roof was already burnt down and a lot of the walls had been badly damaged and were just embers. Agafia and all her pets and her livestock were all totally fine, thank goodness. And of course, people then had questions, well, how did the fire start? And it was reported that maybe a candle had fallen over or maybe the stove got too hot because it seems no one wants to just come out and say what I think is obvious. Agafia torched the joint. She must have hated that place. And now she's had a taste of the good life all summer in her fancy new home. She was probably gagging for everyone to piss off so then she could piss off the old house forever. She would have thought that when everyone left, she'd been left in peace and probably couldn't wait to set the old shack ablaze. Or possibly and... We know she loves the spotlight. She loves to be the focus of attention. She loves having the chance to tell people how hard she has it in life. And maybe she wanted to give everyone a reason to come back and hang out with her for a few more days so she could enjoy being right at the center of a little bit of drama for a bit longer. And if that was her plan, it absolutely worked a treat for you. So there you go. A little Agafia update. She's still in the forest. She's still being a menace, possibly even being a little firebug and getting everything that she wants without paying a cent for any of it. Okay, next up, let's talk about what's going on in the free Britney-verse because there are two updates this week that I'm sure you'll want to know about if you don't already. Firstly, you'll be happy to know that Britney's parasitic little sister is really not having a good month. Basically, Jamie Lynn Spears had announced a little while ago that she was releasing a memoir called I Must Confess, as in one of the most iconic lyrics from the bridge of Baby One More Time. And the Britney army were just not having that. It is Britney's song and the lyrics are not there to be appropriated by her little scavenger sister. So they expressed their outrage and Jamie Lynn really had no choice but to change the title. And she announced the new title last week. She's calling it Things I Should Have Said. She got blasted straight away for that, including by Britney. Within hours, Britney posted this facetious announcement on Instagram that she too was going to be releasing a book next year and asking her fans for a bit of advice to help her choose the title between option one, shit, I really don't know, and option two, I really care what people think. And everyone recognized exactly what Brit was doing. They applauded her for it and had a good old laugh at Jamie Lynn's expense. And then the Britney army turned their attention to the fact that Jamie Lynn was claiming she was going to give a portion of the sales of the book to a mental health organization called This Is My Brave. And the Britney army got in touch with the founder of the organization and they were basically like, you probably don't want to be associated with this little snake or anyone in the Spears family who've been profiting from imprisoning and exploiting Britney for the last 13 years. And sure enough, the founder of This Is My Brave absolutely agreed and announced this week they will not be accepting any donations from Jamie Lynn. So she's quite embarrassed. Things are really not going well for her. And from where I'm sitting, it just looks like such a beautiful example of karma in action. The other big Britney news is that there is finally going to be a Britney musical. It's opening in November. It's called Once Upon a One More Time. And it's one of those jukebox musicals, kind of like Mamma Mia, uses all Britney songs, doesn't tell Britney's story, though. It tells the story of all the classic fairy tale princesses like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. They're getting together for their regular book club meeting while they're living their happily ever afters. And one night, a fairy godmother gives them a feminist manifesto to read and then all the princesses decide they want to start taking control of their own lives. I am so pumped to see this. I can't even tell you. It looks like it's going to be the gayest musical since 
kinky boots. The cast is really diverse. My only disappointment is that it doesn't look like there are any drag queens in lead roles, which seems like such a missed opportunity. I'm sure that'll change with future productions. I desperately want to see Courtney act as Cinderella doing a duet with Adore Delano as The Little Mermaid. And then speaking of stage productions, coincidentally, there's a play about Lorena Bobbitt that opened in Boston this month. It's called Lorena, a tabloid epic. And we did an episode about Lorena Bobbitt cutting off her abusive jerk of a husband's penis in the 1990s and how it became a global news headline that evolved into a joke that's since been reevaluated. And it's definitely worth a gisson if you haven't already. The thing that I found quite interesting is the woman who wrote the play, she wasn't born when Lorena gave her husband the chop and she managed to make it all the way into her 20s before she even heard the story for the first time. One of her friends told her about it. This made me feel so old. Her friend told her the story and the writer of this play thought that her friend was telling her a fictional story and telling her how great it was. Then her friend explained that, no, this had really happened, which then led the writer of this play to do a little bit of researching. Immediately, she could recognise how emblematic the story was of tabloid culture in the Western world. And so she decided to write a play about how messed up it was that a woman's torment had become a global joke in the media. And then moving right along, a lot of you have been asking about what's going on with Belle Gibson, a.k.a. Sabontu. There's not really a whole lot to report here. Rosie last gave us an update when we did our Melbourne live show in April. That was basically announcing the documentary that I'm sure most of you have watched by now called Bad Influencer. Belle's been lying low, which I guess everyone in Melbourne has been doing for the last few months. But in early August, she was spotted out and about with her son and she was still wearing her Ethiopian headscarf. This is despite the fact she has been publicly disowned by the Oromo people whom she claimed had adopted her. The Oromo are a Muslim ethnic group from Ethiopia. She'd claimed that they'd welcomed her into their community when in fact she'd basically just invaded them as a way of trying to reinvent herself. And a couple of months back, the president of the Australian Oromo Community Association in Victoria told the media that Bell had been explicitly told to stop coming to their functions and like stop gate crashing their weddings, stop showing up at their community meetings and their barbecues, stop dressing in this exaggerated way that she imagines the Oromo dress stop claiming to be part of the community and he was also very clear to mention that she was definitely not involved in any of their fundraising efforts because bell who we know is a notorious liar and scam artist had been publicly telling people that she was going to help raise large amounts of money for this community which was a huge red flag so the oromo community publicly distanced themselves but regardless it seems that Belle might just be doing what she always does. She's doubling down and continuing to pretend that she's an Ethiopian woman named Sabontu. And just quickly, if you want a little giggle, someone anonymous, and there is a small part of me that thinks that someone might have been Rosie Waterland, set up a satirical Instagram account a few months ago called at Belle Gibson official, where they're pretending to be Belle, still pushing her cancer-treating diet, and each caption is just delightful. I think my favourite one is, Excited to announce the latest chapter in my story. I have COVID. I have all the symptoms, dandruff, colour blindness, and the yips. But don't worry, I'm working on a cure, and it involves paprika. So everyone go follow it because it may just get taken down and you need to see it. Whoever's behind it, you are hilarious. Now, of course, I almost always find a way to bring up Cher. So let's talk a bit about what's going on with her right now. Honestly, this is just annoying. A lot of people have sent it through to us. Not that you sending it through is annoying. The fact that this has happened is annoying. Since their divorce 45 years ago, Cher and Sonny, and then 
Sonny's estate after he died have been splitting the royalty payments for all Sonny and Cher music whenever it gets used in TV shows, movies, streamed, whatever. Sonny's estate gets 50% of it, Cher gets 50% of it. But first the money goes to Sonny's estate and then they pay Cher her 50%. And all of a sudden, Sonny's widow, Mary, has just decided she's going to change the rules and stop paying share, which is just a dick move and totally greedy. And so Cher's now having to waste her time suing Mary for a million dollars and getting her lawyers to make sure Cher does keep getting paid what she's owed in the future. And Mary, she used to be a Republican congresswoman. Right now, she's just being a fool. She should be embarrassed that she even tried to take on the Empress because Cher always wins. All right, next up, Imelda Marcos and her family. This one is pretty serious and quite bleak. So back in April of 2020, I served up my first ever gistical for your dinner parties. It was episode 30. I called it Shoes, Glorious Shoes, the story of Imelda Marcos. And Imelda was the first lady of the Philippines. They called her the Iron Butterfly. She acted like a queen and together with her husband, the President Ferdinand, they stole billions of dollars from the people of the Philippines. And her whole opulent saga is just wild. If you haven't listened to it yet, you really must because she is also a huge menace, just on a totally different level to Agafia. Well, when we left Imelda and the Marcos family, Imelda was gunning really hard to get her son Bong Bong Marcos elected as president. And it looks like it might happen next year, thanks in large part to Facebook and YouTube. So last week, Bong Bong officially announced he's running for president, which was no surprise to anyone. Everyone saw it coming. But what is a bit shocking is that a poll that happened last week revealed that despite everything the Marcos family did to damage the Philippines over decades, and despite everything that they stole from their taxpayers, Bong Bong is the third most desired person in the entire country to be their president. Basically, the poll was asking if you could pick any Filipino to be president, who would it be? The most popular response was the current president's daughter, Sarah Duterte, but she hasn't announced whether or not she's planning to run for president. She's got another month to make up her mind. The second most popular person said he wasn't going to be running because he's retiring. And so if the election was held today, Bong Bong Marcos would probably win by a landslide. How did this happen? How did public sentiment about the Marcos family change so much? In the last five years, the Marcos family and Robert Duterte, the president and his team, have together been ruthlessly using social media on an enormous scale to rewrite history and at the same time discredit anyone who criticizes them for doing it. And their goal has been to totally shift sentiment towards the Marcos family to put them in a positive light. They have tens of thousands of Facebook accounts. Some are fake, some are rented, and they're constantly posting about how Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos were the greatest leaders the world had ever seen, talking about how they united the Philippines, brought the country into the 20th century, set it up to be prosperous, and stating that any rumors about their stealing and their corruption were lies. And they use wild false headlines like, Even the Pope endorses Bong Bong as president, which if you're in the Philippines, it kind of seems entirely possible because the Marcoses do actually have the endorsement of multiple high profile church leaders who are super influential. And even though all the lies like the lie about the Pope can be totally debunked, as we know with COVID-19 misinformation that can be debunked, some people will believe whatever they read especially if it just lines up nicely with what they want to believe. And anyone who does try to debunk the misinformation ends up being attacked by swarms of trolls and bots controlled by the Marcuses. And if they happen to be a public figure, they then become a target of a major smear campaign. So a lot of people are really scared of speaking out about this. 
essentially the Marcos family are using Facebook as a weapon and Facebook is pretty much doing nothing to intervene, certainly nothing substantial. So right now it is kind of looking like the next twist in Imelda's story will be that she finally gets back to the palace that she's been missing so badly since she had to flee from it in the middle of the night in the 1980s. And we'll find out in May next year when the election happens. Okay, next up, a gaggle of you have asked me to do an update on Elizabeth Holmes. By far, you've requested this more than any other topic because Elizabeth is currently on trial. Now, I'm going to leave this one until Rosie's back and until we know what the verdict of the trial is. She and I have both been following along each week by listening to two podcast series, which I'd really recommend if you're as invested as we are. One of them is called Bad Blood, the final chapter. The other one is called The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial. And these are both follow-up series that originally covered the Theranos scam a few years ago. I'll just go on record here as saying, based on what I've heard so far, my money is on Elizabeth being convicted. Her legal team managed to get her to be tried as an individual so that she could then throw Sunny, her ex-boyfriend and business partner under the bus completely and pretend that she knew nothing about all the fraud going on at her company and just blame him. But so far, a lot of witnesses have been very adamant that Elizabeth was the one in the driver's seat and that they witnessed lies upon lies coming out of her mouth in that stupid fake voice she did. Rosie still thinks Elizabeth might get off with a fine and a slap on the wrist. So... Time will tell. We'll find out who's correct in a few more weeks. And when Rosie is back, I will certainly be requesting that she does adjust the gist on what happened throughout the trial. Okay, now just quickly dipping into another scammer, Anna Delvey. She's been in custody now for seven months. She's been held by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Department since March, and she's in pretty rough conditions. It's basically just still prison that she's in and her lawyer's been trying to get her released. They've even applied to get her asylum status, which seems kind of ludicrous to me because the definition of an asylum seeker is someone who's seeking protection from persecution and serious human rights violations in another country, which doesn't seem applicable to her, but we know the kind of relationship that she has with the truth. So Anna did another TV interview last week, didn't say anything new or exciting. Just once again, she unironically talked about how she didn't have any fraudulent intent while explaining why she chose to commit fraud. It's not one worth watching, really, that interview. But if you're wondering when the Netflix Shonda Rhimes TV show Inventing Anna is going to air, the answer is the 1st of January 2022, which scarily is only two months and nine days away from the time that I'm recording this. And P.S. Speaking of productions that we're excited for this week, Elizabeth Banks finished shooting her movie about Cocaine Bear, a.k.a. Pablo Escobar, which is the story that Rosie served at one of our live shows earlier this year. So that movie will be released in 2022. We'll certainly be lining up to go and see it. And once again, 2022, only two months and nine days away. Okay, so I better go ahead and set up the episode that we're about to replay and explain what makes it historically significant right now. Well, this week, 89 years ago, Major Meredith and his group of elite soldiers were waiting for the rains in the southern part of Western Australia to stop so they could launch their attack on the 20,000-strong army of emus that were marching towards them and that they were planning to annihilate. And also, you might have seen this already. We did post a story about this on our Instagram when it happened a couple of weeks ago. It looked for a hot minute like the emus had finally declared Emu War 2 over in Japan when a large group of adult emus busted out of their farm and terrorised a small city over there. And then last week, the Japanese authorities announced they think They've caught all of the emu escapees, but I'm 
not convinced this is all over yet. And I'll tell you all about it when we get to the other side of the original episode, which you can choose to listen to or to skip if you've already heard it multiple times. Totally up to you. We'll put the time code in the show notes if you do want to skip ahead. But I will say even I had a good old laugh when I re-listened to it this week. So here's our episode from July of 2020 about the Great Emu War of 1932. And on the other side of that, I'll walk you through the Great Emu Escape of 2021. Enjoy. And it's your turn again this week, Jakey. So you're telling me what the topic is. So what is it? Well, this is a story that I've told you before, but um, you and I were both... legless. Um, (laughs) So I'm hoping that you don't remember too many of the details. This is the story of the Great Emu War of 1932. No, I don't remember anything because as you say, I was legless when you told me this. It was a couple of years ago. We were intoxicated. You were visiting in Melbourne and um, (laughs) I have actually found out uh, far more interesting facts in researching for this week. So hopefully it's going to be fun. Yes. Um, And there have been lots and lots of articles written about this and lots of quirky videos made about it. I'm sure there are lots of podcast episodes as well. Um, But somehow I did not know about it until I was about 32 years old Mm. and one of my best friends from high school posted something on Facebook saying, every now and then I can't help but laughing to myself like a crazy person because I remember that back in the 30s, Australia went to war officially with emus. (laughs) And I was very confused about the fact that she knew this because we had been in almost all of the same classes together all throughout high school and part of primary school. And if I didn't know about it, how on earth did she? Obviously, she was spending more time on the internet than I was. I only know of it because you once got really, really drunk and tried to explain it to me. So that, and that was two years ago. So other than that, I would have had no (laughs) idea that it happened. And because you were really drunk and I was really drunk, it was kind of like an episode of Drunk History in which, you know, I'm not sure I retained anything. And even if I had, it probably would have all been ridiculously inaccurate. So... (laughs) (laughs) Today may be much more of the same because, as I mentioned, (laughs) I am on round two of the Bloody Marias. All right. So this wasn't technically a war because I don't think that the emus realised they were at war Mm. with um, the Australian military, but it was an official military operation. It lasted just over a month and just like all wars, it was very expensive and a big, big waste of time. And it definitely was a war between humans and emus as opposed to, have you ever heard of the pig war in no. the 1800s? Was that hit? Was that in Australia too? No, that one was in North America, in Canada. Um, and that was started because an American farmer killed a British pig or vice versa. And then that sparked a war up there. Between- um, that's a whole nother episode for another time. <laughs> Between the pigs and the people? No, no, that was between... Or between people who were annoyed that he'd killed that kind of pig. Yeah, the Brits and the Americans went to war with each other because one of them had killed the other's pig. But in the emu war, it is a war between the the emus and the people. Yes, man versus bird. Yes. Described so eloquently in a newspaper at the time as... Um, man versus an enemy as old as Western Australia itself, a tough and unpredictable adversary. Um, so we're in Australia in 1932 in yes. the district of Campion, which is in WA, and that's about three hours' drive east from Perth. This so was a town in the middle of established- nowhere. Correct. Mm. They set up this town as part of the soldier settlement scheme. So when all the soldiers came back from World War One, they were given land and told to establish a farm and start a new life there. And that's that's how they created what they called the wheat belt of WA. It's good, but it's not great because they gave them a little bit of money, a little bit of grain um, and helped them with housing. But Mm. they didn't actually do a lot to set them up for long term success and sustainability. So for a lot of them, they actually didn't have enough money to even build fences. Sounds like more than what we do now, though. I'm sure it is. But ultimately, it did leave 
to further problems that they yeah. didn't give them enough support. And in many ways you could ask that it was a little bit manipulative because they were sort of being put to work to grow wheat that the rest of the country needed. Oh, so it wasn't like, here's a whole setup, thanks for going to war. It was like, here's a whole setup, by the way, we need you to grow some stuff that we need. Correct. Uh, um, and we suck. keep in mind that this... Yeah, it was all happening in the Depression as well. Uh, um, so at that time, the cost of wheat really plummeted and the government said, don't worry, keep growing the wheat, we'll subsidise the prices for you. Mm. And then they went, <laughs> just kidding, can't afford to do that. Um, so they were kind of getting screwed not only financially but also environmentally because growing wheat in Western Australian desert is incredibly difficult. Uh, so for a few years their dear. crops failed. Yeah. In 1932, the farmers finally had a decent yield from their crops Mm. and they were kind of threatening to hold it hostage from the government. Good. Because the government had promised them these subsidies and then they backed out of that promise and they said, look, if you're not going to give us the price that we'd agreed to, we're just going to hang on to all of the wheat. Yeah. Um, They were in this sort of standoff, but they hadn't yet harvested any of the wheat. So the wheat was still growing. It looked like it was going to be a decent yield. Mm. And then the farmers of the Campion region heard Mm. that there were more than 20,000 emus migrating inland from the coast for their annual breeding season. (laughs) I'm sorry, did you say 20,000? Correct. 20,000 of these big, tall, fluffy animals. So they go out and spend the summer near the coast where it's a little bit, sorry, the winter yeah. at the coast. And then when they're coming back for their breeding season, they need to go back further inland where it's a little bit drier and scrubbier and they so can is this, build their nests. Is this one of those things where Australia is so vast in ways that we don't quite understand, even today, but particularly mm-hmm. back in the 30s before there was even, you know, a lot of development, that there could literally be a group of 20,000 emus that just no one would really come across often. That's how much just Mm -hmm. vast space there is in this country. Correct. That's nuts. Um, And they spend a lot of their time as solitary animals, so they go out scavenging on their own most of the time, but when they're migrating, they migrate in herds. How much space do you reckon that is? Like five football fields? Like I reckon it'd, it'd be a lot. After this, we'll take the time to do the maths and work it out. But, yes, it would be enormous. Like, yes. Okay, so Dino just did the maths and apparently 20,000 emus would take up the space of 26 kilometres of space. Square kilometres. I think so. Well, yeah. So, Mm -hmm. like, that's, Mm -hmm. like, more than a couple of football fields. (laughs) <laughs> that's like a couple of suburbs. Quite a bit more, that's like I think. from no, that's like from Circular Quay to like Cronulla if you're in Sydney. I don't know if other places in Australia. Work it out for yourselves. From where you are to 26 kilometers away. <laughs> and they thought they were gonna get in with two trucks and two guns. <laughs> I just can't oh. tell you what, that's what men and their incompetence get when they come up against some powerful ladies who are getting orgasms all the time and abandoning their kids all over town. Oh, all right. So a sea of emus working their way towards this crop of wheat that you've taken <gasps> years to grow. This is finally no. the moment when you can actually start to make a decent living off the hard work that you've put in and these emus, you know that they're going to come and wreck it because, like I said, most of the farmers didn't have enough money to build fences. If they did build <laughs> fences, they were kind of crappy um, and emus can jump more than two metres anyway. And also there's 20,000 of them. They're, they're just going to trample your flimsy fence. Yeah, which then allows all the rabbits and all the other animals to get in as well. <gasps> Um, so, and also they're kind of terrifying. Let's face it. These mm, no, they used are. to be dinosaurs. Their middle claw, just like the velociraptors in Jurassic Park, they mm. can actually eviscerate an enemy. And there's video footage of them doing that to dingoes when they're attacking them. And they run really fast. Like one of the foster homes I lived in, they had this farm and they had a bunch of emus on the farm that they just let wander around the farm. And sometimes an emu would just lock eyes with you and start sprinting towards you. And it is like a fluffy velociraptor, like 
coming at mm-hmm. your face. They're huge and they run fast and they make a weird noise. They're terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, P.S. Have I ever told you the story of the time I was attacked by a rooster when I was a <laughs> one-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> Why? What happened? So, firstly, I can't believe how um, irresponsible they were to let emus just run wild with you when you were a child. But my parents let the roosters run wild with me when I was a child. So, I, for this first two years of my life, <laughs> lived up near Coffs Harbour. Um, and I was wandering around in my nappy in the front yard of the farm that we had. And all of a sudden, my parents watched this rooster just lock eyes with me <laughs> and just sprint towards me. It jumped and... <laughs> just threw both of its legs onto my chest, (gasps) knocked me onto my back. My parents were absolutely terrified that it was going to scratch and peck the crap out of me and make me a blind person for the rest of my life. But luckily I got out of it with only, I think, a few scratches on my chest. Anyway, my dad had a rifle at the time. That rooster challenged you to a cockfight. (laughs) He saw me as a threat. He challenged you to a Uh cockfight. And I guess he kind of won the fight, but then, um, yeah, my dad just shot him and then I believe that they ate him. Um, Your dad shot it? Yeah, my dad had a rifle. He was a badass. Did it have a name? I'll find out and get back to you. (laughs) It's kind of a grim story, Jacob. It was a very, very um, bad-natured cock. Anyway, so. (laughs) Come across a few of them in my time. (laughs) Hoyo. All right, keep going, keep going. (laughs) All right. So, obviously, the most luxurious place that these emus could spend their breeding season would be in these comfy wheat crops with all of the food that they needed. Um, and mm. so they started getting into the farmland and they started eating as much wheat as they could and they're stomping all over the crops and they're pooping everywhere. They're destroying fences, letting all these rabbits in and people's it's kind of, entire it harvest like was being fest, wiped out. like a music festival, you know what yeah. I mean? Just like a bunch <laughs> of people like Glastonbury or like Coachella. It's Emu Coachella. <laughs> You're like, get <laughs> lost. <laughs> so obnoxious and the right person for the farmers to have asked for help from at this point would have been the minister for agriculture but because they were all ex-soldiers they had a lot more trust and faith in the military than they did Mm. in bureaucrats and politicians and the bureaucrats and politicians have screwed them over at this point so why would you trust them that's right Um, They also knew from first-hand experience how effective machine guns could be when it came to taking out an enemy front line. And so Mm, they sent a a couple of the 5,000 farmers all the way over to Canberra so that they could meet with the Minister for Defence, Sir George Pearce, and they asked him to very literally bring out the big guns to help wipe out these emus. And so Can Sir I Pierce, ask you, did, did the Minister for Agriculture step in at this point and say, hello, excuse me, this is not a foreign enemy. This isn't a war that requires the army. These are emus. Did anyone step in and go, guys, 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 not machine guns, not soldiers? At this point, they genuinely thought, yep, this is going to be an easy, quick fix. We're just going to give you two of our top-of-the-line Lewis machine guns. We'll give you 10,000 bullets, which is very optimistic to think that you're going to be able to wipe out 20,000 emus with (laughs) With 10,000 pieces of ammo. And only two machine guns. Two machine guns, two experienced gunners, um, but they also gave them the expert leadership of one major GPW Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery. So they are literally treating this like a battle in a war. Yeah, correct. They've given them weapons, they've given them trained soldiers to use the weapons, and they've given them like an army general to come and control the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they really For thought Amy. that the whole matter was going to be over in the space of just a few hours. And Major Meredith didn't think that this was a legitimate deployment, um, like he had to go and actually meet with Sir Pierce yeah. to get clarification about, um, are you seriously asking <laughs> like me it, to do this? I just got I back from <laughs> the greatest war of our generation and now you're sending me off to kill some birds. Okie dokie. So no one took it seriously, but let me guess. 
the birds fight back. (laughs) I don't want to spoil it, um, but the birds really do come out on top in this. Yes! (laughs) Major Meredith, by the way, is my new favourite drag name. And I think if I ever do develop a drag persona, I'm going to call myself Major Meredith. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Major Meredith. Um, And so then this is the first time in history that I'm aware of where a country declared war on an animal that's literally on their own coat of arms. (laughs) The Minister for Defence, Sir Pierce, was able to justify this to Parliament and to the public by explaining that the soldiers would really benefit from this target practice while they were in between wars. Um, And it also seemed to be a really good way to demonstrate the government's willingness to support Western Australia at a tough time um, because they needed to do everything that they could to help prevent WA from seceding from the rest of Australia. So I didn't know that there was this movement going on in the late 20s and early 30s where Western Australia wanted to break away from Australia and become its own independent nation. Mm. And the year after the Great Emu War, they actually did have a referendum. Did you know this? No. No, they did have a referendum where the popular vote was, yes, we Western Australians want to break away from the rest of the Federation and become our own independent, self-governed nation. That was the popular vote. Um, But then when it was taken to British Parliament, British Parliament just dismissed it and said, no, it's not a legitimate referendum. All right. Like, shut up, you children down there. (laughs) Don't be annoying. (laughs) Go back to your (laughs) emu stuff. Okay. Yes. So, all right, uh, October, we're in sort of mid-spring and Major Meredith and his soldiers arrived in Campion and they had their first battle all planned and all ready, but just as they were about to strike, it started raining <laughs> and so that. they had to... <laughs> They had to postpone the first battle um, because it was rained out. So they had to spend a few days just taking shelter. And then on the 2nd of November, conditions were good enough that they could finally actually get out there and start taking out some emus. A group of 50 emus had been spotted at a watering hole just outside Campion. So overnight Mm -hmm. the army went out and they set up their guns under the cover of night and they waited until sunrise. And then as soon as they (laughs) felt like they could get a clear shot on the birds, they opened fire. But, of course, as soon as the birds heard the very first gunshot, they just got up and scattered. Um, And they just kept trying to spray bullets everywhere in the hope that they would take out one of the birds. Um, but they did not. No, not even one. There was zero not casualties in that first attack. <laughs> <laughs> but then they got to tracking and they later underestimated the, day, the birds. <laughs> they really, really did. And this is never just underestimate the, the birds. Keep in mind, this goes on for a month. Um, Later in the day, they went out and they found another small flock and they tried a slightly different tactic and they were able to kill, and I say this in inverted commas, perhaps a dozen of the birds so they didn't present the bodies. <laughs> so there was no perhaps proof a dozen. of the death count, um, but perhaps a dozen or so of them. Um, and by the way, there is fantastic video footage of this day because this was a little bit of a PR stunt to show how the Australian federal government was supporting Western Australia. Um, yeah. They sent out a camera crew to capture the action here. So back in the day, this is pre-TV, people got their news at cinemas and the government really wanted everyone in Australia and over in Britain um, to see how well the WA farmers were being supported because they were national heroes as ex-soldiers. So they hired British Movie Tone to come and film a newsreel to document the progress that they were making. Um, And it is just (laughs) so beautiful to watch this black and white footage. And I'm going to try to do the voice now (laughs) because it is that. (laughs) pan uh, Australian and um, English accent that they would do on the news back there. And the narrators saying things like, things are desperate. It's a war to the finish this time. (laughs) Our lads have to do some real stalking to get close to this enemy. The enemy's watching events through their periscopes. And they have... (laughs) That's so good. That's so good. Uh, And then it ends with, there'll be no more damage done here for many a day. Um, But that is 100% (laughs) 
inaccurate because the there'll be no more damage done here for many a day (laughs) 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 yes fake news that was Two days later, 4th of November, Major Meredith received intelligence that there were up to a thousand emus that were heading towards <laughs> a dam nearby. <laughs> he had scouts all <laughs> over the place. <laughs> oh my God, this is so good. <laughs> so he started planning another ambush um, and the soldiers sat quietly and they waited until the birds were close enough for the bullets to be able to reach them. And then they just started spraying at them again. But within just a few seconds, the gun jammed. And by that point, of course, <laughs> the birds had just completely scattered through pure luck. Some of the hundreds of bullets that they were able to fire took out 12 birds. So that was one of the most successful battle days that they had had in Mm -hmm, the entire mm -hmm. war. Um, But then no emus were seen by anyone in the army for the rest of the day. (laughs) Two days later, (laughs) Major Meredith on the 6th of November received word that there were more birds even further south and that these birds were a lot more placid and a lot easier to shoot. Um, But by this point, the troops' morale was really starting to drop because they didn't feel great about the fact that they were being outsmarted by a group of animals that looked like they'd been designed by Jim Henson and the Muppet Factory. And (laughs) (laughs) the soldiers had started talking to the media and giving classic quotes like, Emus soon began to... Sorry, I should do this in the voice. The emus soon began to improve their understanding of the science of warfare. Um, and the emus had. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm losing it. I'm sorry. Their understanding of the science of warfare. <laughs> okay, keep going, keep going. Um, and by all accounts, from the farmers and the soldiers, the emus had figured out really quickly exactly how far away they needed to stay from humans to be able to remain out of range of the guns. Um, (gasps) They're geniuses. It's like that moment in Jurassic Park when they figure out how to open the door handle. Correct. Uh, Honestly, these things are the descendants of velociraptors and probably even smarter. Um, There were also reports that they'd started forming their own little battalions. So each of the little groups of emus that had formed seemed to have their own leader. And I'll do another quote and I'll do the voice again. This one (laughs) soldier said, each pack seemed to have its own leader, a big black plume bird, which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction and warns them of our approach. At the first (laughs) suspicious sign, he gives the signal and dozens of heads stretch out at the crop. A few birds will take fright, starting a headlong stampede for the scrub, a leader always remaining until his followers have reached safety. <gasps> they are geniuses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so Major Meredith had to come up with a strategy that was going to outsmart these genius birds. And so he came up with a plan to make the machine guns mobile, considering that it was really, really difficult on foot to get close enough to be able to shoot the birds. So they attached one of the Lewis machine guns onto the roof of a truck so that they could chase the emus down and shoot them on the run. But what they didn't take into account is the thing that you got to remember about emus, they can run over 50 kilometres an hour and they can very yeah. easily handle uneven ground. They're also very, very agile and they can dodge, duck and weave. Whereas and the also truck, you, which... you couldn't even shoot them when you and they were standing still. Yeah. <laughs> why do you think you're going to be... Why do you think this is going to help? All right, boys, let's ride on the truck. Let's get it moving. Yes, let's all get on board this truck and weigh it down with people and heavy weaponry and ammunition. So they were struggling to I keep up. can I just ask at this point, how long has it been now? Only the matter of a few days right. since and the so first attack. Right, and so there's 20,000 emus and so far they've shot, what, less than 20? Around 20. Correct. And that's if we even believe their reports, which were unverified. And they thought it was going to be done in two hours. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, keep going. So the truck can't even keep up with the birds. And even if it could keep up with the birds, it would only be able to keep up with one at a time because they've figured out how to scatter. Um, And then you'd have to be a really, really good aim. But it turns out that it's almost impossible to hang on for dear life when you're on the back (laughs) of a truck going over this bumpy terrain, let alone fire a machine gun with any sort of accuracy at an animal that's running around in front of you faster than you in a zigzag pattern. So (laughs) that was the only day that they tried out that plan and they gave up on it pretty quickly. Um, On that day, though, there was one casualty because one of the farmers in the convoy decided that he was going to take the initiative to crash his own truck into one of the slower emus that had broken away from the pack. But that emu came out on top because the emu crashed through the truck's windshield as soon as it made impact with the truck. Its neck got tangled in the steering wheel and the driver lost control of the vehicle, (laughs) ran off the road and completely destroyed one of the few precious fences that they had there. (laughs) (laughs) He he literally thought, I'll just crash my truck into it. Yes. And then the emu was like, lol, no, I'm going to steer this truck where it can cause the most destruction. (laughs) Sucker! Yeah. So um, let the history books show that the 6th of November 1932 definitely went to the emus, not to mankind. (laughs) What is just... What, I can't stop laughing because I just think, okay, there's 20,000 emus, there's yeah. soldiers from the army, and it literally comes down to, like, can you imagine these frustrated men just going, well, I'm just going to catch that one. <laughs> yep. Just going after a single emu and still not being able to get it. <laughs> uh, and it was the slowest oldest emu that he managed to hit with his car but then he managed to not only destroy his truck but he destroyed a fence as well so he just made the problem worse for everybody oh all right so now a couple of days later 8th of November, there'd been lots of bad press coverage, believe it or not, about what a farce this had all become. And Mm -hmm. the war had to be discussed in the House of Representatives and the (laughs) Minister for Defence had to get up and explain himself, which he tried to do and failed. So he decided he was going to withdraw the troops. Um, One ornithologist commented in the press at this time about the whole matter. Um, The voice again. Yeah. The EMU command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. So that was the explanation <laughs> to the public as to why they could no longer continue with this war. Um, Major Meredith tried really hard to defend himself and his men and maintain some of their pride and dignity by explaining just how tough the EMUs were. And so he said... The emu is an amazingly hard bird to kill outright. Many carry mortal wounds up to a distance of half a mile. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity that these birds have, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of (laughs) tanks. They are like Zulus, who even dum-dum bullets could not stop. (laughs) So is he literally saying... I'm not kidding. We can't kill them because it's possible the emus could be the most powerful army in the world. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) He was telling the world they are impervious to bullets. They are very, very fast learners who figure out how to form little formations and little militia groups and good luck to the rest of you if you want to try to take them on. But he sort of tried to wash his hands of the whole matter at that point. Yeah. I will give him a little bit of credit though, because another emu was hit by a civilian truck on the road. And when they checked out the body, it did actually have five bullets in its main torso area but it was still up and walking around like these birds really and truly are made of tough stuff um and another soldier told the media look there's really only one way that you can kill an emu you either shoot it through the back of the head when his mouth is closed or through the front of his mouth when his mouth is open that's how hard it is so even if it was just a a zombie yes you gotta get the brain 
Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That seems to be the only way that you can slow it down because these things are tough. Anyway, so the first round of the war was called off, but then within just a few days on the 12th of November, they declared war again because the farmers were saying, look, we really do still need help. And so the Minister for Defence... Sir Pierce once again approved redeploying these soldiers, including Major Meredith, to give it one last red-hot go. So (laughs) out they went with a new strategy. This time they were going to take a slow and steady approach and act more Mm. as like a stealthy sniper-style unit. Um, It's definitely going to work. That's definitely going to work. Some of the days were a little more successful than others. They claim that on average they'd been taking out roughly 100 of the enemy every week, um, which seems, okay. you know, they're getting into the triple digits, but then when Major Meredith had to report back that he'd used up more than 10,000 rounds of ammo to kill (laughs) less than (laughs) 1,000 emus... And during the Great Depression, it was costing more than 10 rounds per bird that they were actually taking out. The government decided that they were just not willing to give them any more money. Were there any other suggestions at this point? Like, did the Minister for Agriculture or any, like, bird specialist step forward and say, this is not going to work, here's what you need to do to get rid of these emus? Did anyone have any other suggestion or was the whole country just like, Australia is collectively at a loss? Like no one (laughs) else knew what to do? (laughs) They ended up coming up with a different plan. I don't know how many others were being put on the table, but what ended up being effective once all of the troops had been recalled was... um, creating a bounty scheme. So this was very sort of grassroots. They told the population of Australia, you can earn four pence for every emu beak that you bring in and six Ah. pence for every egg that you bring in. Um, And they reckon that they probably were able to cull more than 300,000 emus over the course of a few years um, by giving people a financial incentive to go out and hunt them one by one. And I bet Um, the emus sit around today talking about the great emu massacre of 1932. (laughs) We lost nearly a thousand of our men in 1932. No, but then they lost 350,000. Yeah. Because the government turned all the people on them. Mm -hmm. That's an emu genocide. They do still have a pretty strong population. Okay. Apparently. Hmm. Anyway, then the question was raised by someone, I don't know if they were just being a smartass, but someone in Parliament asked, should the soldiers who are involved in this war that we launched get medals for their service? And, of course, <laughs> that was just met with a whole lot of laughter. Like, can they, can they march on Anzac Day if they were in <laughs> <laughs> the, the emu war? <laughs> Uh, um, and then it's on the record that another minister said, look, it really should be the emus who got the medal because they won every single battle that we ah, started with. wrecked. Wrecked. Brutal. Uh, True, though. Um, and then from that point on, the emus just kept coming back every year and they kept doing just as much damage year on year. Um, and even though the military had failed so badly at their first attempt, the farmers kept asking them for help. Um, they mm. went to Canberra again to lobby in 1934, saying, please give us soldiers, give us artillery. And the government refused because they'd learned their lesson. In 1943, they went to them with a proposal. Look, what if this time the Air Force comes along and they just drop bombs <laughs> onto the flocks of emus <laughs> from some low-flying aircraft. Um, and then in 1953, when they went to the government and asked for help, they came up with a brand new plan, which turned out to be effective, which was putting up a nice big fence. Um, and so ah. that's where the okay, hostilities well, I'm sorry, finally I'm sorry. ended. Can you just hold on, hold on. So this whole time the solution was... <laughs> a fence. Building a fence. <laughs> No one had thought of that. So we're talking 1933 to 53. In 20 years, they got to the point where they were talking about getting the Air Force to drop bombs and then someone was like, wait a sec, let's build a fence. (laughs) Look, it's kind of Trump-era thinking, build a wall, but it turns out in some instances it can actually work and 
this was one of them. Well, they are, at the end of the day, just animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly very smart ones, but still, mm-hmm. big strong wall. If they can't knock it down, then what are they going to do? Some lessons have to be learned the hard way, though. So, that was the Great very Emu hard War. Way. <laughs> of 1932 and just before I wrap it up I want to end it with one of my favorite facts that I think you'll really enjoy about emus Um, and keeping in mind that we haven't brought up the topic of gender dynamics for a while I thought this one (gasps) might be something to help raise that conversation once again so the female emus really are the dominant gender in this particular species no wonder they're so smart and successful Mm-hmm. Um, and they really, really dominate the males during breeding. So I thought it was interesting that they lay their eggs in a nest that the male is responsible for making for them. They yes. lay the eggs. Then the female leaves, never to return. She goes off to <laughs> mate with another male while the father... <laughs> Sounds like my mother. <laughs> <laughs> So the male is left there to incubate the eggs. Childhood (laughs) trauma. We're able to laugh about it now. Um, We laugh. Yeah, he he has to sit on the eggs and incubate them for many, many, many months, in which time he doesn't leave to eat or drink or anything. It's (gasps) two to three months he has to incubate them. Um, And then once the baby emus do hatch, he has to look after them for about 12 months. Um, And so when you see those emus walking around with the little babies following them and the babies are all stripy and super cute and adorable. They're the dads. That's the dad because the mum, once she's laid her eggs, she's out of there to find the next John. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I got to tell those little baby emus, I know how that feels. Just hope that your emu dad isn't schizophrenic because then you're really (laughs) f***ed. Alrighty, first, if you're a teacher or a parent and you're not doing anything to get this piece of Australian history added to your school's syllabus, please bump that task up to somewhere near the top of your priority list for this month because the kids need to know. Now let's go ahead and talk about the great emu escape. So, A couple of weeks ago, early in the morning, the police in a small city in Japan called Kikuchi received an emergency call from a concerned citizen who was reporting a large bird that looked like an ostrich wandering around beside a road. And they were puzzled. Then they started getting a few more calls from people reporting similar sightings of these terrifying Muppet-like creatures. So off they went to investigate. Turned out there is an emu ranch on the outskirts of that city, which had been set up in a spot that used to be a primary school. And it's now billed as a tourist spot for anyone who wants to gawk at a mob of emus in the middle of Japan. The emus are there primarily because they're being bred for their oil, their body fat, which not a lot of people know is a thing, but it's absolutely true. Emu fat is rich in lipids that are believed to be really good for nourishing the skin. So quite a lot of skincare companies use emu oil in their products, even though a lot of them don't even call it out. They don't sing about it as a hero ingredient. They just sort of tuck it away in the ingredients list. And so all these emus are headed for the slaughterhouse once they've been fattened up enough. And I think they're smart enough to know what fate awaits them. And they started hatching a plan. And on this particular October morning, and no one knows how, but about half of the mob of emus made a run for it and scattered out into the Japanese wilderness while some of them went into the suburbs and the city. Some made it a long way others not so far. And because we know emus are solitary animals for most of their lives, it was every bird for herself. And the best guess as to how the emus got loose is that one of them opened a gate or perhaps that they operated as a team. None of the fences were down. The gate was opened apparently from the inside. They truly are 
the clever girl velociraptors from Jurassic Park. And of course, the police and animal control started trying to capture the emu escapees one by one. And straight away, they issued a warning to the public about how dangerous, even potentially lethal the birds are. And they told everyone, stay well away from them. Never approach one if you spot it. Thankfully, Japanese people very intelligent and very good at following sensible advice like that. So there were no injuries, there were no lives lost. And then less than a week later, they announced that they thought they had captured all of the fugitives and all was now well. But the thing I find most odd about this whole story is the lack of details when it comes to numbers, because in all of the reports you read, they use terms like about, as in about 20 of the birds escaped. And when they started catching them, they said that they'd caught about 10 and that there were still about maybe 11 on the run. And then when they said that they had caught all of the birds, they said that they'd caught around 20 of them, always being non-committal about numbers. No one has ever actually confirmed that 20 was the exact number. They seem pretty confident that they started with 54 birds before the breakout, but no report I've read seems too concerned with getting an exact figure of how many made a dash out that gate and then how many were returned. So, I am choosing to believe that there is at least one rogue emu still running loose on this Japanese island, just laying low and plotting its revenge. And I'll wrap it up there with that image. I wish you all a very happy weekend, whatever you're getting up to. Thanks, as always, for listening. You know how to get in touch with us. We thank you for all of your messages via email and Instagram. We love you and we'll see you again next week. Listener.